Well, hey, friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins, and I am super glad that you are here. If you have not um, checked out halfwaytherepodcast.com, we have archives, we have uh, free giveaways, we have, uh, there's also some Bible studies that I'm creating for you. I want you to go check that out and see, including. Uh, one of the most recent, which now is Celebrate with Jesus, a little eight-day journey in the um, wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. Today, guys, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, Today, our guest, he's a fellow podcaster, he's an author, and he's also a former criminal mastermind. Uh, he, He is Mike Savage. Mike, welcome to Halfway There. Eric, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on the show and just sharing your story with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing. You, you, I mentioned your podcasting. Tell us about all of that. Yeah, uh, my wife and I do a podcast called The Savage Perspective, and uh, it is ostensibly Christian, um, but we like to kind of have a little bit of fun. I, I rely awful heavily on <laughs> Psalm 2 about uh, the Lord sits in the heaven laughing. And so I'm, we're, I'm a little more irreverent, and, and but, Cynthia's not. But, as, as if if you're laughing, you can't be Christian. <laughs> I know. I know. I've been around a lot of uptight people, though, I'll tell you what. Uh, Fair enough. In, in, in my life. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, I, I, as a, I'm an adjunct professor. I teach psychology, sociology. I teach uh, most theological topics. I begin a course uh, pretty soon on theological ethics, which made me laugh when they asked me to to do it because of my background. Yeah, but, uh, I teach that. I teach a lot of the uh, the biblical studies. Uh, I will dabble in languages on occasion, but it's just going to be with syntax. We're not going to teach you from uh, from the beginning, and uh, a lot of other. I'm an adjunct professor, podcaster, author. Uh, wrote my memoir uh, after Hurricane Harvey hit. And God said, look, I'll give you some time. And so I'm able to, to do that. And so that's that's pretty much my life. And I live here on Padre Island uh, with my wife and, and two dogs. I just have to put her first. I have to say that first. But uh, Smart. It's a smart life. man. Yeah. Happy life with a happy wife. Sounds right? like the um, voice of experience. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, and so I'm trying to uh, just see where God's leading. And it's it's been um, it's been a journey and it's and it's. It, Life is fun right now because we live in a pretty isolated part of the island. So there's days when I don't see anyone but my wife and the dogs. So a lot of time to talk with God and listen. So it's it's, uh-huh. it's a fun existence right now. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Okay, well, I want to hear all about it. So, um, and I should mention right here that I just had the opportunity to be on your show, A Savage Perspective. Um, by the time this comes out, that will have been a little while ago, but um, links are in the the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com, so you guys can check that out. If you want to hear more from Mike and I talking and chatting a little more from, from my perspective. Great. Yeah. So... Tell us about your story. Where are you from, Texas? Or are you where, where'd you grow up? I I was born in Florida. Uh, stayed there with my parents until age eleven. My dad got laid off uh, when the space program backed off. He was he was an electrician for uh, a lot of the subcontractors for the space program, and he was laid off. We moved to Denver, Colorado. He went to work there, and and Golden actually for a brewery. And uh, right. as an electrician, and so my teenage years, I I spent in in Denver. We lived in Lakewood. Uh, it was the 
president of Green Mountain High School, uh, oh, yeah. student body president. Uh, uh, great. And uh, played football there. A uh, little bit of time playing football for uh, CU until we discovered that uh, my enthusiasm for the game did not have the same talent level. And so <laughs> left that and uh, got into broadcasting. Uh, I was the news director at the world's smallest CBS affiliate in Goodland, Kansas. And most of you who are in Colorado know where Goodland is. They don't want to go there. They'll pass through it or whatever. So. Nobody wants to go to Kansas, Mike. No, no. but my wife is from Kansas. Ah, <laughs> so ah. I know, huh? She graduated from KU, but I met her in Goodland. Ah. And uh, then ultimately ended up moving to California, uh, took over as the program director for a radio station, and eventually uh, decided I don't like meetings. So I went into the, the talent end and uh, became a, a radio talk show host. And I'm not the Michael Savage everybody thinks about today. When they, oh, yeah. I was I was Mike Savage, and did that for a few years. Uh, got into crime, uh, and ended up in federal prison for 15 years, two months, and 28 days. I, you know, now I got out in 2007, and uh, it was it was quite a learning curve for a, a Southern boy with no understanding of cell phones, oh, internet yeah. or anything like that. So, Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. We're going to talk about all of that. So tell me about your, like what, what it was like growing up, your religious kind of experience. Was it a Christian family? Was it not? Was it, well, was it like, um, we went to a Southern Baptist church and, uh, I didn't understand it. Didn't understand what was being said didn't want to really understand my life at that point was thinking about football. That was all I really thought about. And, uh, I was baptized because everybody else in the youth group was being baptized. So I was baptized. And, um, like I say, I never really understood, never really put anything into it, uh, as far as understanding compassion, any of those things. I had no understanding. We moved to Colorado, attended another Southern Baptist church, Again, not paying any attention, and I'm getting into my teenage years and, you know, being rebellious and doing that sort of thing. But I never really understood God. Now, my dad was a deacon of a church or of the church, and my mom was, you know, perpetually ill with one illness or another. I mean, it was one of those, uh, well, we can't quite figure out what it is type of thing, and uh, got hooked on painkillers and, and all the other things that they would prescribe back then. Yeah. So, you know, most of my time was spent, you know, taking care of the house, uh, taking care of my mom because my dad had to work. Um, never really got into talking to pastors or I thought, and the kids that, that were real holy rollers, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the thing, I just didn't relate to them. I didn't get it. I mean, they, they probably did, but I didn't. So I was pretty much a knucklehead, but at the same time had no interest in God. Okay. So you were going to church, but didn't really care. Yeah, I didn't care. And then gotcha. we had to go. It was it was Sunday. We went to church. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. So growing up now, I just need to know this so I know kind of where we're going. Are you did you end up finding Christ in prison? I did. You did. did. Okay. So then yeah. tell us what it was like beforehand, you know, and then and then I want to ask like how you got it how you became a criminal mastermind, because I just can't wait to hear that story. Sure. But but sure. how did you how did you like, what was it like spiritually for you up until that time? When I went to prison, um, I was not religious at all. Okay. Zero religion. Um, I was placed into, a um, to the kitchen as a, as a worker there. 
and began to, to learn the process of making what's called pruno, which is homemade alcohol uh, in, in prison. Of course, it's not supposed to be there, but that's what I started making. And I ran the, the gambling part for the guys who were betting football, baseball, bet on anything, you know. So I, I was involved in that, and I was doing okay with that. You know, it was one of those where I kept busy. I was, I was sure my wife was going to leave me at any point. I mean, I was just, it was, there was no, this is a no brainer. You're not going to wait around, you know, for me. And, and so I was trying to do what I could do in prison. And then one day I got transferred to the chapel as a chapel clerk. And I, I didn't understand why I was being transferred. You know, I liked my job. I made money doing that, you know, selling this stuff. But it just showed up on the job change orders one day that I was to go to the to the chapel, and I got there and I met the chaplain, very nice man, a Southern Baptist by the way, very nice man. I said, "Why am I here?" And I used a couple of swear words and mm. that to kind of punctuate the point that I really don't want to be here. And he said, "You know, I see something in you." He says, "I read your uh, it's, a, it's your jacket. It's mm. it's the report that the Federal Bureau of Prisons and." FBI and organized crime task force, all these people combine all this stuff and they read about it. And this is supposedly who you are. And uh, he says, I just see something in you. And I think that you'd be a benefit here. And I said, well, I do not want to be here. And he says, just, let's just give it a try and see what happens. So basically it was organizing all the stuff for all the religious groups there, rooms, services, all that kind of stuff. And it was basically a paperwork type of thing. And I'd have to talk with the inmates and do all that kind of, and they all knew me because I was the guy doing the gambling and making the Pruno. <laughs> but the, the deal was they, they were totally different when they were at the chapel than they were on the, on the regular compound and then in, in the rest of the prison. They're very, you know, holy, you know, the, the Muslims were holy. The nation of Islam was holy. The Catholics were holy. The Protestants were holy. You know, they're just, everybody was holy. Wicca was holy. Everybody's like native Americans. So I'm there and my job was to make sure that all the services went off. And I was the last guy to leave, last prisoner to leave every night. And so it was a, it was a Saturday night. We had a, a guest group coming in. They came in. They, they did the preaching, the singing. I'm sitting in the back, you know, just kind of waiting for this to get over. You know, and and, and I'm, I'm sure Cynthia's going to leave me. My wife is just, you know, she's going to divorce me. She has to. Who's going to wait for somebody for 15 years? No, no one's going to wait for somebody. I've, I, saw, I saw people leave, their, their wives leave them a month after they came into prison and they had a two-year thing to do. I mean, it just, it, you don't stay. It's, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So I'm sure of that. I'm depressed about it. I'm angry and upset at myself and about stuff that happened. And this guy's preaching, and, and I don't know how many times I've been through listening to the sinner's prayer and all the things they do at the end of a service, right? And I'm kind of just at that point where I just kind of put my head down. I said, look, God, I know you're real, but I, I'm a prisoner. I'm a, a piece of garbage sitting here. And I prayed the prayer. And the peace of God, Eric, wow. came into me. Uh, and I, I, I have a little uh, problem when it comes to to thinking in a linear fashion. You know, next step, next step, next step. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my, I can't do simple math. I can't do a checkbook. Cynthia won't let me near the checkbook. <laughs> I can, I can do statistics like I'm doing for my for psychology, but I, because I, they're patterns. I see things in patterns. I understand things in patterns. It's all patterns to me. If I don't see the pattern, I don't understand it. So. I'm lifting up all this stuff in my life to him and he's taking it. And there's this wow. peace 
And that's the only way I can describe it. And I didn't even know how unpeaceful I was until the moment that the peace of God hit me. And it was, it was absolutely a life-changing, life-altering experience that he explained it back to me in patterns, you know, of, of, of how things were. He, he was doing. I, I don't know how to, I, I wish yeah. I could show you in my head that the picture, but he was explaining to me, you're forgiven. Yeah, you did that. You're forgiven. So, um, well, I, I was saved at that point. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful story. I love that God, um, spoke to you in a way that you could understand, right? Like, because he, he, the only way I could have understood it. Cause he knows you, right? Cause he yeah, knows exactly. what, what is, uh, you, how your brain's wired and how you need to need to hear it. All right. So that is a really great, like, I'm, I'm glad you told that story. So then I want to know how you got there. So tell us that story. And cause yeah, you're right. We, nobody expects your wife to stay with you. Yeah. And if I'm, if, I think I remember reading this, that you, the, your wife didn't know you were a criminal mastermind. This sort of came out of the blue. Yeah. It was so tell us, what, what, how did you become a criminal mastermind? How did you end up there in the first place? All right. Well, first of all, we need to, to make it clear. Criminal mastermind is, is irony. It's <laughs> right, an ironic title, all right? <laughs> and, and the reason that, that it became part of the title of the book is at the time when, when the federal government was indicting people, um, everyone was a criminal mastermind. You know, from from guys like me who were you know moving money, doing international, to the to the street drug dealer, you know, that had somebody else working a criminal mastermind. Yeah. So it was it was a standard phrase. So I was I was doing my talk show, and I I had a person on the on the show that um, used to get a lot of phone calls. It was a regular, and I'm not going to say who it was or anything. I'm say that it was a regular, and we had opened up a conversation. At the time, uh, I was making. I think it was $1,500 a month working at this radio station. And uh, it, was, it was nothing. Yeah, pe- people think that being on the radio is glamorous. It's not. <laughs> no, it's not. But it was, <laughs> this was, this was uh, 1985, and I was making $1,500 a month uh, living in Napa, California. All right? And, and it was tough to make ends meet. Yeah. I mean, really, really tough. And um, so I... I this person, we opened up, had a conversation about some things, and she said, hey, look, I, I, I know some people that if you're interested in some extra work. And I said, uh, yeah. I said, you know, we're doing what? She said, well, we'll let them talk to you and, and all that. So I get a phone call maybe two days later, and they're talking to me and said, let's, let's set up a lunch. So we went to lunch at this really fancy place in Napa, and um, they're saying, oh, we need a guy like you you know, you're pretty charismatic. Um, people like you. Um, and we've got some, we just need somebody to represent us and negotiate some deals. And I said, well, I'm not a negotiator. I'm not a, a lawyer or anything like that. I said, no, 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 Mike, we just need somebody who will tell you what to say, show you what to do. And I just need to do it. And, and you know, you probably end up doing some traveling. Um, but, you know, we make substantial amounts of money. I said, like, how much? He said, well, we're talking about six, seven figures, Mike. Whoa. Yeah. Yep. And to my 26 year old mind, I said, okay, I didn't ask any questions. I didn't, no bells went off or anything like that. I said, but in order to do that, I need a half million dollars in my bank account by the end of the week. You know, this was a, this was a, you know, show me. And they did. 
Whoa. Back in those days, you could transfer all kinds of money without having to report it to the IRS. You could, I mean, it was it was it was freewheeling. There was no internet. Fax machines were just you know beginning to become popular. The loud, noisy things. Yeah. Wow. So it was the wild, wild west, and they did that, and I was sold, and I, I stopped asking questions. So basically, what I was ending up Wh- doing. Why did you ask for a half a million dollars? Because I didn't believe him. You know, so you thought nice lunch, they were paying for the lunch, but I didn't believe them. I you said, thought me, this is so astronomical. They're never going to give this to me. Right. Oh, right. wow. Okay. And they did. And they did. And, uh, I was, <laughs> it's on. <clears throat> that's, that's what I was thinking right then. You know, this 26 year old mind to say, all right, let's go. And I never asked if it's illegal. I didn't ask for anything like that, but it's essentially what it came down to was opening up bank accounts, meeting with bankers in places across the world um, and making sure that we could transfer large amounts of cash or large wire transfers of, of money into these banks. And then they would send it back, most of it back, uh, and, you know, for a fee, of course, and um, it would be clean money. And so, oh, yeah, you're money laundering. That's all right. And, and and there's a difference between money laundering and international money laundering. Uh, <laughs> you know, right. you can launder money in the United States, or at least you could back then. I have no idea right now. I have not kept my finger on the pulse of, of crime. But the uh, the international money laundering was, was pretty serious because they know that when you're sending it overseas and trying to hide it, right. um, it's, you know, this is not a good thing to have happen. Oh, yeah. And so I just I worked at a bank for 13 years. So. It's nothing like that. Like they monitor everything now. Like it's it's very you can ex- expect that. So yeah, because of guys like us or me. You know. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for screwing it up, Mike. We appreciate. I it. did. I did. Now I think you know we were we were moving hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. of wire transfers all the time, and it, 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 we get a percentage of it. Do all that. I was in Hong Kong. I was in South Africa. I was in all these different countries setting up these accounts, and um, then they, the the government when they found out. They couldn't quite figure out what it actually was that I was doing, so they called it a Ponzi scheme. And and so it was easier for them to explain it as a Ponzi scheme to, to a jury than to explain the intricacies of, of this. I was actually tried under drug statutes um, for white-collar crimes. Wow. So, yeah, it gives you an idea of, of how new it was back then. Now it's nothing. You know, you know they figured out instantly, and it's money laundering. But back then, <clears throat> back then it was just for, for drug cases there was no uh nothing like for that for white collar wow interesting okay so how did you end up how did how did you figure out that the government was like on to you and you were like they raided the house in napa my wife was uh <clears throat> pregnant with our with our youngest son and they raided the house uh the fbi irs organized crime task force u.s postal inspection service um, the, all the local police and all that kind of stuff raided our house. And that's the first time that I knew that they were on to us. And it was the first time that Cynthia had any idea that I was doing anything wrong. She thought I was working for an import export company. And that was, uh, you know, she's not looking into all that. She trusted me. Yeah. And the first time I knew they were on to me is the first time, um, they knocked on the door and raided the house. Okay. Well, that's gotta be terrifying. It was. Um, they took Cynthia away because she was pregnant. They took her away, and um, I didn't know where they where they'd taken her. And so I was, I was, you know, kind of upset. I could have either cooperated at that point or been a jerk, and I chose the jerk route. 
because every time I asked him where my wife was, well, she'll come back when you're through finished, uh, when you're finished answering our questions. And uh, I just, I wasn't having that. That wasn't going to, so I, I just was a jerk to him. Uh, they tore the house apart and it was a huge house in Napa. Uh, they, they, they tore the house up uh, and left and, and brought her back. And turns out they had taken her to, to a local breakfast place and uh, had a lady, you know, pretending to be friendly to her to see what she knew and what I knew and all that. And since Cynthia knew nothing, no one knew anything that was in my family or close to me. She had nothing to, to tell them because she had no idea what was going on. She genuinely didn't know. This pregnant woman wow. genuinely had no idea uh, what was happening. Wow. Okay. Well, that has some implications for your marriage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it does and did. And when she came back and asked me what was going on, I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And, uh, when I said stuff like that, she knew that I wasn't going to open up. That wasn't a, a discussion starter. Um, and I knew that anything that I told her potentially, you know, if there, I, I didn't know about the husband wife thing, you can't testify, but I wasn't going to take any chances. Yeah. So I just, I froze her out on that. And, we things went on for for a couple of years before they they wow yeah i thought i was arrested that was they ran on the stuff in the newspapers and tv stations about what had gone on but it went over a period of two years before they i was actually arrested wow okay and so was it like life just happy while you were doing that while you were waiting no. or just you were like uh, constant terror all yeah, the people yeah. that i knew suddenly were gone um, the, there was a car that used to sit outside. Uh, we lived on, a, in the Hills and it would sit on the Hill and stare at the house. And I didn't know if it was newspaper. I didn't know if it was the cops. I didn't know who it was that, that was doing that. And the last thing I was going to do was walk up there and find out. So there was that. So the curtains were drawn all the time. Every time the doorbell rang, it was a jump thinking, you know, you're, you're about to be taken to prison. Um, all of this stuff. And then uh, some people that, that were involved in the money that was sent overseas decided it'd be wise to file a civil lawsuit. And they did that. And so the government and the civil suit began seizing our property, you know, house, cars, wow. uh, bank accounts, all that sort of stuff to where we were the point of, of being destitute. We really had no money left to do anything with. And um, the lawyers that I had suddenly when they couldn't be paid, they didn't stay on the case. So yeah. For the public defender, yeah, they were gone. And um, so it, got, it was pretty dire. You know, honestly, it was pretty dire. Yeah. Okay. So this whole time you're, cause you grew up in, as a Christian kid, how were you feeling? Like, how were you thinking about God? Were you at all? You know, the, uh, I'll tell you how that works for me. Um, some people, when they come into difficulty, turn to God. You know, I've seen that a bunch yeah. of times in prison. I've seen, you know, there were, and now they've been out of prison. People, you know, that aren't particularly religious turn to God. I didn't turn to God. I didn't turn to God. Uh, instead, I did something entirely different and and began to rely upon myself and began trying to think things through and 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 make my own plans of how I'm going to make things happen and what I'm going to do to 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 fix this. And I never turned to God. I didn't, you know, there was, there was the idea that I could have, but I didn't. Um, I, I was so sure that I was the smartest man in the room that I was going to be able to, to, to figure that out, which is ironic because later after I got saved and was in prison and uh, went to seminary and, and began 
preaching and teaching while I was in there, I remember saying to guys regularly, you know, look around you. This is the result of our best thinking. And it was being in prison, you know, was the result <laughs> of our best thinking. Right. And, and so it's, it was ironic. I, I laughed about that years later, but I just tried to work out things on my own. I was, I was, I was going to do it. I, I was resourceful and I was going to make it happen. Wow. And, that, I, and I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that's so interesting. And I think it's, it's like, you're right. We have these opportunities and you can do one thing or you can do the other, right? You can either turn to God or you can turn away. No. And that. I didn't even turn away because I didn't even know him at that point. You follow what I'm saying? It was yeah, sure. Where I didn't know his character. I figured if I was good, he would be nice to me, you know, and if I was bad, I, I would get punished. And, and I just, I couldn't. Uh, as difficult for me to, to, if I'm going to behave good, well, be nice. I want to do it because that's who I am, not because I'm trying to get something from you. you right. Know? And even that in my fallen condition, that was still the way that I was thinking, you know, I, I earned my way. And um, so God's grace was, was a big revelation to me that Saturday night sitting in the back row of that chapel and suddenly having his peace descend upon me. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like so that moment, because you were probably then pretty tense, like with just sort of you're having to hold all these strands together and then it all falls apart. And I can't imagine what that's like to go into prison and feel like. Well, I'll tell you, there's a there's a thing in the book that I talk about where at one point I said uh, to God, and and this is this was in the midst of this two year period. I did say something to him. I said that. uh, Get me out of this. Get me out of this and I'll know you're real. Get me out of this. And, and again, now when I look back on it, I realize that that's exactly what he did. He got me out of it. Wow. You know, now it was, it was not the way I was anticipating or hopeful of. You know, I was looking for a legal technicality. <laughs> but, right. But he was playing a much longer game than that with me, and, and I appreciate that now. But oh. I do remember the one time saying, you know, just get me out of this. Oh, I love that. Wow, friends. Listen to that. I mean, soak that in. He was playing a much longer game with me. Like, what? What would we expect from God if we expected that he's playing the long game with us? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I can attest to that. And I, and I will say this also, that, that it was exactly the right thing. A legal technicality wouldn't have changed me. It would just made me a better criminal. You follow? Yeah. Known things that, but instead, um, he made me a better man, better father, better husband, and, uh, but it, it took a while. <laughs> it, took, yeah. it took a while, 15 years. And it took a while. And, and then even when I got out, there were still some pretty rough edges that, that, that had to be dealt with. So, uh, it's, it might, I'm not saying he's done with me now. I'm just saying I can see looking back some of these really rough edges, but I come rolling out of prison that had to be taken care of too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you find Christ in the chapel that Saturday evening, you said, right. All right, what happens then? Because now you've finally experienced God, really, his love for the first time. Yeah. Then what? I don't tell anybody. I keep my mouth shut. For two weeks, <clears throat> I say nothing to anybody because I'm trying to figure all this out. I'm trying to understand, okay, what does this mean? You know, and, and so I go to the chaplain, and I said, you know, a couple of weeks ago something happened, and you know, I think I got saved. And, <laughs> Which he was thrilled, right? He was laughing. He says, I know, I saw it. You know, he's, I've oh. seen the changes in you. He says, I've seen you change. You're not That's the same cool. guy. You know, and, and I said, okay, so now what? I said, I got all these questions, dude. I mean, I, I, I want to know all this stuff. 
And, and he said, well, let's, you could study, you know, that would probably be the best way to do it. And, you know, the Bible's a great book and, and why don't you, you study the Bible? And I'm saying, okay, how do, how do I do that? How do I do that? And he said, God will show you. He says, there's a, there's some programs that we've got, you know, we've got master life and experiencing God and all these other stuff. You can take those courses. Um, and, and so I did, and it's kind of like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a little more to that. And yeah. So I decided that, uh, that one of the volunteers that came and said, you know, if you read uh, five Psalms every day, you get through the book of Psalms every month. And if you read a, a chapter of Proverbs, then you're going to get through just about once a month. They go through. So I started doing that. And, and so I, then I get some questions. I hear somebody say, Jesus is God. Yeah. And I said, wait a second. Come on, dude. Where does it say that? Yeah. Jesus is God. He's the son of God. What are you talking about? Jesus is God. And, and so it's, just, it's right here in, in, in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was, I said, okay, all right, what does it say in the Greek? I mean, the, where it's originally written, what does it actually say? Because I got another Bible over here that says he was a God. You know, the, the Jehovah Witness Bibles, it was a God. Right. Uh, well, so then I got interested in Greek, and I, I broke out a Strong's Concordance, and I started getting the words, you know what I'm saying? Yep. And I'm looking at the words and I'm trying to put together the Greek and I'm trying to teach myself a little bit of Greek to figure out what's going on. And sure enough, it says Jesus is God. Yeah. Not a God. So, okay, now the Jehovah's Witnesses are out. You know, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be attending there. Okay. So right. I'm going to, and it, one thing led to another. I wanted to know um, different parts of the Bible. So I, I, I began reading Genesis, a chapter from Genesis every day, along with the Psalms and the Proverbs. And then I said, you know, I'd kind of like to understand this Revelation thing, this book at the end. And so I began reading a chapter of Revelation every day. And then as time went on over the next couple of months, I began adding sections. I would read uh, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Numbers, a chapter from that section one day and every day. And then Deuteronomy, I wanted to read that second law. And I broke up all these, the books into all these different sections. So I had like right. 18, 18 sections in the Bible. You know, the short letters, the long letters, the book of Acts is kind of important. So I should, I should read the Gospels. So I got 18 chapters. It's taking me an hour and a half to do a Bible study uh, every morning or evening. And I'm getting hooked, you know, I'm getting hooked because yeah. I'm beginning to see the big picture. Remember, I, I think in patterns. And, right. and so I'm beginning oh, wow. to see the patterns of God throughout the scriptures. And, and when somebody said, well, you know, after Deuteronomy and Joshua, Things aren't always exactly in chronological order. And the pattern came together. Uh, I was trying to equate why is John so different? Well, John's not linear, okay? Right. John talks about, you know, the, the part about the woman washing the feet and all that. And, and all, all these things are chapters 11 and 12 are, you know, seem to go, what? And so I, I get that. I see the patterns to that. So I'm reading John, the chapter, and it's, it's, it's lighting me up. And then... I started reading the commentaries. Um, and, and there was a great one, the word biblical or word commentary. There was that. Yeah, those are good. It's like, oh, you know, I'm eating this up. And then I start reading the Talmud because there's the, the Talmud is there also, right? And so I'm reading that. I, I pick up the Quran and you will, I almost got stabbed by um, a couple of Christians when they saw me laying in my bunk reading the Quran one night. What are you doing? You can't read that. <laughs> But I'm reading the Quran. You know, I want to see what everybody else is saying about Jesus and what's going on. So I'm reading all this material. Um, I go to a couple of different services for different groups. I go to the Catholic. I would go 
Protestant. I'd be doing these different things, trying to see what we have in common. And then a friend of mine converted to the nation of Islam. And he said, you need to come to one of the meetings, Mike. Well, he was new. He didn't know. Yeah, bringing in a, a six foot three big white guy with a, a long beard uh, <laughs> probably wasn't the best. But I went there and made some friends and we would eat dinner together. You know, the nation. Of so I, I had all these Native Americans. I go to the sweat with them and we talk, but I was making friends and I was learning scripture and I was reading commentaries. I read Calvin's Institutes. Wow. I understand what he, what he was trying to say. You know, I'm not sure Calvin would be a Calvinist today, just you know, <laughs> from reading his institute. You know, what I'm but I had time to do that, and so there was this frenzy of learning. And then the chaplain would ask me to speak or to teach a Bible study or do that thing or the other. And and it was there was this dual life again, Eric, that occurred. I was this guy striving after God, seeking, thirsting, mm. wanting to learn. And then there was this other guy knowing that his wife was going to leave him. I, I didn't yeah. have any kind of certainty. In fact, I was certain that she was going to leave me. But there was this, I felt like there was this dual life again, like I had outside of prison. You know, Mike the dad and all this kind of stuff and Mike the criminal. Yeah. And two totally different. Mike the criminal was not at all like. How long was it after you were in prison that you, that you found Christ? Through Two and a half years. Two and a half years. So you're yep. still fretting that your wife is going to leave you. Right. I'm sure of it. I'm not fretting. I'm certain. You're, you, you know it's going to happen and you're dreading it. Yep. And I tell her on the phone virtually every night that I know she's leaving. Uh, three separate occasions, I told her I was divorcing her. That's it. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I had no way of doing it. <laughs> I had no way of wow. do it. But I, I told her I'm divorcing her. And, 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 you know, they listen to the phone calls in, in prison. You know, they're monitored. And Cynthia said during that last one, she said, now listen to me very carefully, Mike. If you ever threaten to do that again, I'm going to reach down this phone line and yank you through it, and you're going to get another five years for escape. <laughs> and, uh, well, it's, it's funny now, but they monitor the phone calls, and escape is a word they take yeah. enormously seriously, all right? So I get called into the <laughs> lieutenant's office. You don't say. And, and told... <laughs> And he's using very colorful language about how can you doubt this woman? She's with you. She, I ought to just lock you up in the hole now for, you know, solitary confinement just for being stupid. And again, he punctuated it with a lot of yeah. you know, colorful phrases, right? We can all imagine that. <laughs> it was, he was lighting me up. And, you know, the, the thing was everybody said, look, she's staying with you. She, she'd been, even up till when I was, had been in as long as 10 years, I was still certain she was going to leave even though she wow. stayed through the whole thing. Okay. So how did that resolve? Like what, how'd you get to the practical side of, of the, the peace that God was giving you? <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't, um, I was preaching and teaching. I was discipling other prisoners. Um, was in charge of the, the chapel at the last prison that I was at, set up choirs that went outside to sing at various churches. Um, I completed my degrees while I was in seminary. Cynthia visited me every single time that, that, that she could. Um, and I just never got to that. And, and let me punctuate how bad that is. All right. Let me just, let me just illustrate my turning point, in my relationship with God, as it relates to growing occurred when my wife was going through some pretty severe financial issues. Uh, my parents were going through financial issues. She was going through financial issues. 
And I had suggested that they move in together and pool their resources to um, you know, make ends meet. And um, I remember calling the first weekend that she was there. And uh, in prison, you pay for your phone calls. You know, you, you, back then there was no collect phone calls. You had to pay for them. You didn't have any money on your account. Uh, and, and I made 12 cents an hour. And so I wasn't wow. going to go far. So Cynthia used to send me $20 every week to put on the phone. And I, I would call her every night, even if it was just for one minute, uh, to let her know, you know, I'm okay. Nothing's happened. Uh, she knew if I didn't call that I was in the hole, you know, for something, for some reason, you know, being in the wrong place, wrong time, saying the wrong thing or, or getting in a fight. Um, and, and the, uh, the, if the prison, if I didn't call and the prison didn't call, she knew I was okay. Cause they would call and tell her I was dead. If there was, if there was some sort oh, of, wow. but she would send me $20 every week and put on it. And so it, it always happened. I always got the $20 to put on the phone. She, um, she was talking to me that night, the, 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 the weekend that she moved in and she said, your parents are, she says, they're really something. I said, well, yeah, take a look at me. And, and she <laughs> said, um, do you realize that they, they go and buy food before they pay their bills. And I said, yeah, I mean, they're children of the depression, you know, the food's first, the, the bills come second. I mean, that's just the, that was the deal. Make sure there's food in the house. And I, I was saved at the time. And, and the Holy spirit said, push that a little further, son. And I said, well, I said that you send me $20 every week. It's not like you've been without food or anything like that. Oh, wow. And there was this silence. Oh, and um, I, I get emotional every time. Wow. I, she said there had been times that she made sure the kids were fed. There wasn't enough food for her, but she made sure the $20 got sent to me because it was more important to her to hear that I was okay than to eat. Wow. And, and um, <laughs> uh, I quickly into that phone call. I said, okay, I understand. Thank you. And I, and I hung up and I was furious with God, furious, Eric. I mean, I, and I told him so, I mean, I was, it was one of those things where I said, you know, I, what kind of God are you that would let an innocent person suffer for me? I'm the one that should be suffering, not her. How could you do that? And I, I went to bed furious. I, and, and I go to work at the chapel the next day and announcing that I'm quitting. I'm, I'm not going to be in seminary anymore. I don't want to do any more teaching. And he said, why? And I said, and I told him what happened. And he says, Mike, don't you see that that's what Jesus did for us? He suffered for us when it should have been us. Don't you see that? And I started crying. Yeah. I was still mad. Don't get me wrong. I was still yeah. childish enough to be mad. But I, I broke down and, and I understood better the self-sacrificing love of God through the self-sacrificing mm. love of my wife. And, and that was a turning point for me. It, 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 it created a filter through which I read Scripture, looked at Scripture. Um, when I was singing worship songs, it was with that filter in mind, this idea of what my wife had done uh, in order to make sure it was more important to her that she knew that I was safe than that she would eat. And I was, uh, when I started writing the book, it was starting out to be an homage to my wife. You know, it was, that's what it's supposed to be. But it, it, instead it turned out to be, this is, this is how God works. And um, it is often uncomfortable. 
uh, and it is often difficult to understand. But when it is finally absorbed through our, our, our layers and layers of self-justification, pride, and ignorance, when it finally gets in, it's a life changer, Eric. I mean, yeah. an absolute life changer. That's why I make so many jokes. That's why I laugh so often because this is, this is one of those things where I know God and, and I know he knows me and I know that he loves me. And exactly what have I to be afraid of if I am certain of that? And so it gives me joy. And I can make fun of things and I can laugh and joke about myself, about other things. But to get there, I had to go through some rather painful, uh, difficult and embarrassing things, and including writing the book or even talking about this. Yeah. You know, a man with pride wouldn't because it's going to be, and I'm not saying all my pride is gone. I mean, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's, it is in such a way that I, I understand really what self-sacrificing was. I have experienced it personally in the flesh from my wife. Wow. That is an astounding story. That is a bit like how I can't imagine. And this is where God is so good, right? I cannot imagine a, a better way of convincing you that not only that she loved you, but that he loved you. Yeah. How, how fascinating. But returning to where we started from when I, when I took us down that rabbit trail and hopefully caught the rabbit, I still had my doubts until the day I walked out of prison and she was there waiting for me. I mean, they were, they were, they were, much lower. I mean, because in the meantime, we had to go through the death of both my parents while I was in prison. Uh, Cynthia went through cancer while I was in prison. Um, all of these things that were, you know, shaking, <laughs> causing me to shake and, and were shakable things. But with each one of them, my confidence in her grew and grew. And, and finally, the day that I walked out, I still wasn't certain because I wasn't certain what I was walking into as far as society was concerned, what the expectations were. Um, but there was, a, there was a growth that was occurring. There was, there was this understanding that this is a growth process. This is not an instant, you know, a busted again, born again type of thing. This is, a, this is a real significant thing that takes time. The roots are settling in and you'll get better at this. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what was it like to walk out and see your wife? Like what? You know, the last day in prison guys are usually worried um, because if there's another (laughs) indictment out there, um, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. And so you pack all your stuff up and I was packed up the night before and and the guys had a little party for me and uh, I was awake all night. You know, I'm not going to sleep. And so, they, uh, they come to the cell at like four o'clock in the morning. Okay, so I was good stuff. Let's go. And I picked up my stuff and we're, we're, we're going out. I'm walking down the steps and get into the area where uh, I'm going to be waiting for a while, right? And they let me keep my property when I went into the cell. And so I knew I didn't have another indictment because if they took the property, you got a new indictment coming, brother. You just helped them pack up your stuff. That's all. But I was able to keep that. And then I fell asleep. And about eight o'clock, this guy shows up and he's banging on the cell. How can you sleep when you're getting out today? And it's like, oh, yeah, cool. All right. I got up and then the excitement hit. You know, I'm going to a halfway house. Yeah. For, you know, six months or whatever. I'm going to go there, but I'm not going to be in prison. You know? Yeah. And they open the door and I'm, I'm walking out and I see Cynthia and she's across the, the lobby. And all these 
guards and counselors and case managers come walking up to me to shake my hand and say, you're one of the real ones. We know you changed. Go out there and do great things. I mean, they were waiting for me to shake my hand. They came in to, to do that, you know? And, and I'm thinking, yeah, 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 okay, 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 okay. I'm trying to get to my wife, you know? But she's smiling and she's seeing these people, you know, stop me to, to shake my hand. And, and you don't shake hands with, with guards or, or any of those people. You don't touch them. They don't touch you unless they're searching you. But they, they genuinely wished me well uh, walking out. And so it was, I didn't realize that until later after Cynthia reminded me when we were driving away, Hey, did you, it was all a blur, but I, I did remember it. And it was, it was a kind of a, a, a neat time, a humbling thing, seeing her across the lobby and me having to go through this group of people to, to, to get to her. Wow. That sounds like a amazing moment. That was pretty cool. I have to admit, I mean, cause you don't know what people think of you when you're, you're in there, you know, it's, especially the, the, the guards, you know, just expect the worst and, and go from there. But, um, it was, it was, it was a, a really great experience to, to have that happen. Wow. I would have been killed if I'd gone back in afterwards if some of the inmates had seen me shaking hands with the guys. <laughs> you know, I'm out. Let's go. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So you get out and that's just, God does some amazing things with you here. Um, what happens then? Like, so you, you're teaching now, like, so take, you did seminary in prison, you said. So then what what did you do? What happened? I, I went to a federal halfway house. And uh, the, the pastors and the chaplains that I had met uh, in prison had all assured me that I was called to be a pastor. Okay? Because I was counseling inmates and I was teaching and preaching. And I wasn't really sure what that was. But I figured, look, if that's all it is, and if all I got to do is preach and teach and counsel people, uh, I'm in. You know, I'm thinking that's that's all there is to it, right? So I get out. And she takes me to the halfway house in Oakland, and I am uh, immediately on guard at the halfway house because people from all different levels of security are mixed into the same thing, and it's co-ed. There's male and female. And you can imagine all the stuff that, that, that would be going on and the potential for things going Because if I mess up at the halfway house, I have to go back to prison for six months. Oh, yeah. And, and so I'm not trying to do that. So I get out, and first couple of days, it's just orientation. I, I finally said, okay, I'm going to start applying for jobs. And I, I look, you know, what am I qualified to do? Well, I, was, I, I know how to organize things. <laughs> I, I, I'm not very good with my hands. I'm okay. Uh, but I come across this job at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They're looking for uh, people to go out and check fly traps in, in, the, in the Bay Area to, to, you know, for whatever moths and flies and stuff, you know, and so I applied for it, and I got called in for an interview, right? And I didn't have a car, didn't have a bus pass. So Cynthia drives all the way from, from where she was living in uh, uh, Vacaville at the time. And it's about 50 miles away from, from the halfway house. She drives in to take me to this interview. And I'm in there, and, and Department of Education guys are saying, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Says so you were in prison. What were you in there for? And I told them. And then they wanted to hear the story. So I started telling them the story about the prison. And they said, what did you learn? I said, well, you know, I learned about God. And I started talking about God. And I started, you know, not a, not a good interview, right? <laughs> um, but they go out and then come back in and say, you know, we'd like to offer you the job. 
would like for you to go to workforce. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to work for the federal government and get paid a decent wage for a change. How about I'm, I'm all smiles. I'm happy. I said, my wife's out there. Let me go tell her I go out. And my wife's all excited to see me. And she says, I've got great news. Uh, the, the church that your dad uh, used to be a deacon at wants you to come there and be a ministry assistance coordinator. I said, yeah, but I got this job at the Department of Education or Department <laughs> of uh, Agriculture. So, ah, this, and she's looking at me and I said, okay. So I go back and tell the guys, you know, I, I can't take the job. I'm gonna, I, I have to go to work at the church, you know. And, and I put it that way, and they're laughing. They said, well, you'll be fine. So I go to work at this, this church as a ministry assistance coordinator. It was basically a made-up job, um, one that they just wanted to get me out of the halfway house, which is cool. Um, then the halfway house has to come check it out and do all that sort of thing. And, but they were just happy to get me out of the halfway house. And, you know, I could go home type of thing, right? So I get home and, and the job lasts exactly 30 days. And the pastor comes and tells me that the money's run out. Oh no. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, I gotta go back to the halfway house. I mean, there's, there's more to it than that, but I'm just going to leave it at that. At this sure. point, so the money yeah. ran out and okay. So I go to work doing construction and I'm around guys that are very rough, very ragged. Um, some that aren't even supposed to be in the country, um, and all of this, and, and my probation officer is saying, hey, look, Mike, you, know, <laughs> you get caught up in the INS raid or something like that. You know, that's not going to look good. And, and so I'm trying to get through that and get, get through all So I went to that, and um, once, once I got off of supervised release, and, and he released me um, about a month early, not, not supervised release, get out of the, done with the halfway house, rather, which was like six months. When that's done, then I began applying for jobs at colleges to teach because I, uh, that's what I'm called to do. And one college took a, called me and he says, okay, let's go through your degrees. Let's see what degrees you have and see what you're qualified to teach. So I'm running through and he says, okay, where are these degrees from? And I'm telling him, he goes, Oh, they're not accredited. So you can't teach at the college level. Oh, wow. You're gonna need to go back to school. And, uh, that's a gut punch. Yeah, and and look, I've I've had problems with my language on occasion, particularly when I was in prison. And at that point, when Cynthia heard me swearing, um, she knew that there was something wrong. She comes <laughs> in and tells me, "Okay, what happened?" And I told her, and she goes, "Okay, all right. Well, where do you want to go to school at?" I said, nah, "I'm not going back to school." She says, "What else do you want to do? You go back to construction? You're enjoying that?" She says, "What God's <laughs> called you to do? Come on." So I went back to school, Eric, and I I got my master's degree uh, in religion. Uh, in, in about 18 months from Liberty University. Wow. Which is accredited, okay? <laughs> it's accredited. And so the school hired me instantly, but the way they hired me, I was teaching a Bible study, uh, and uh, the phone kept ringing. You know, I, I, I kind of finish the Bible study. I go pick up the phone. It's the guy at the college. So I call him. I said, you know, it's 9 o'clock at night. What's going on? He says, uh, Mike, are you available to teach? I said, yeah, sure. He says, uh, okay. He says, uh, come down here tomorrow. I said, okay, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. And, and he says, uh, just be, be ready to go. And I said, be ready to go. What are you talking about? <laughs> he says, well, the, the class starts uh, tomorrow. He says, I'm going to start it off. I'm going to bring you in. Oh, wow. And you're going to teach it. And uh, I guess he believed in me more than I did, right? And so before I hang up, I said, hey, hey listen, listen, what class am I teaching? And he says, historical geography of the biblical lands. 
That's awesome. Up. You're like, wait, what? No, no, no. I need a little training. I need some time. Historic geography. Oh, my goodness. And I realized I'd never even looked at the maps in my Bible. You know, they're like pristine condition. The Bible's like 10 years old. They're in pristine condition. And so, and I'm, I'm going to, I told Cynthia, and she goes, oh, that's great. What's it about? And I said, it's about 13 weeks. That's about all I know at this point for this class. So I get down the next day and, and things took off from there. Um, it's described in the book what it was like being there, but the students just embraced me because I gave them, they said, where are you from? What did you do? So I told them, you know, you know, you're in a classroom with a guy who did 15 years in federal prison um, and, and their, you know, their eyes are getting big and then they take me under their wing. They just, the, the students, the students were great. I mean, wow. just, and so I began teaching other classes, went back and got a, um, a master's in human services with marriage and family counseling, uh, finishing up my uh, PhD in psychology right now, but I've got enough degrees to, to teach cross disciplines. So that's, that's pretty much what I do right now. That's awesome. All right. Your podcast is called the savage perspective. Mm-hmm. And you guys can check that out. Mike, I could talk to you for a long time. We're already, we're already over what I normally do, um, which I love because you're such a great storyteller and uh, you've got that great radio voice. I could just sit and listen to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, guys, I think it, just to give you a picture, Mike looks like Santa Claus, right? No, that's that's what. <laughs> I, listen, I'm going to tell you a story here before. I know you, it's late, but you, you know, posted I'm a criminal. That. What are you going to do, right? Um, the, the, uh, my, we recently had to go back to Kansas for a, a, a funeral. My, my wife's father passed away. And, and the way, you know, we have our cameras on, folks, so we can see each other right now. Yep. Eric looks, you know, he's a young guy and all, you know, he's still got, and I do kind of look like, like Santa Claus. But I get a little irritated hearing it all the time, right? <laughs> it's like the last name Savage. You know how many fights I got into as a kid? Oh, you Savage? Well, let me show you. You know, and that type of thing. I mean, it was just it was, it was horrible. But I get back there, and she's got eight brothers and sisters. It's like walking into to a scene from The Godfather. She's all these people there, and they're talking. And everyone, after the funeral, we go to a, uh, this little dinner type thing we're going to have. And everyone's talking about Santa and talking about this and that and one guy got up in my face. Oh, you really do look like Santa. You like... And I'm, and, and I'm, I'm, I feel my hand clenching. Oh, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to hear this anymore, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, the little kids around Christmas time, you know, they'll come up. Yeah, uh, sure. Grocery, Are you Santa? And I remember with one this year, I said, I winked at him and said, yep. And I know what you did. <laughs> You're messing with <laughs> I love that. I only said it, by the way, because you posted your picture of your nice haircut. The, uh... Oh, no, I'm, it's, it's fair game. <sighs> I did. I got a haircut today. There's there all this hair everywhere, and I still come out looking like Santa. And the guy who cut my hair, he told me later that he was a former prison barber. So I was like, dude, all right. A lot in common. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Mike, I could listen to you forever. Guys, if you want to listen to Mike, you can get his podcast. Just go to your podcast app, look up A Savage Perspective. I also have links in um, the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Also to your book, A Prisoner's Perspective, The Redemption of a Criminal Mastermind. Brother, thanks for sharing. So you had some really just amazing stories. What uh, Anything you want to leave us with? You know, the, the only thing that I've, I always try to figure out how, how guys are going to end this. You know, on, on my podcast, I just say, okay, bye. And that's <laughs> it, right? But the, 
the, the one thing I think I would really like to leave people with is this, you're a child of God. All right. And, and, and I need you to think about that for a second, about what that means. Um, I mean, we can all say, oh, we're children of God. And I, I realize that, you know, I've, I've taken the classes. I understand. We know where we called adults of God in scripture. We're always children of God. But I want, I want you to think about for just one second is what that means as far as who your father is, the creator, the sustainer of all things, all that you see, all that you don't see. The, the, the true God of gods is your dad. And he loves you, even though you may not feel like it right now. He loves you. And I want you to think what you would have to be worried about if you really believed that that was your dad. Just imagine it for a second. Just get a little bit of an imagination of that, and it'll change your life forever. Amen. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. 